0: The reading for the day is in John, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name
1: Let me pray now that God will speak to us through his word. Jesus, I thank you that in one sense the parable of John 1 to 21 is a parable and and yet, more profoundly, it is not a parable. You are the shepherd over God's people and I pray that you would come now and I pray that you would speak powerfully to us. I pray that the words that you spoke on that day and the intentions that you had for that day would transfer to this day, Father, and I pray that you would do amazing things among us, inside of us, in us as a body, and even through us to this community today. And I thank you, Father, for what you will do. Your word is living and active because you are living and active. Your word endures forever because you endure forever. So we open our hearts up now to your living word and ask you to come and do your work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I don't know if you notice, but John chapter 10 begins in a, in a fairly abrupt way. John gives us no editorial introduction, he gives us no narrative introduction, rather he just simply quotes Jesus as saying, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold but by the door climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber.'" So we have to pause for just a moment and ask, when did Jesus say these things in John 10, 1 to 21? Where did he say these things and to whom was he speaking? Well, you may know that, in the original manuscripts of the the Bible, there were no chapters and verses. The chapters and verses of the Bible were added about twelve centuries later. And the reason they were added was to help uh, in reading, in preaching, in teaching, in writing about the Scripture. They were put there as an aid to help us be able to talk back and forth about various portions of Scripture. And in many ways, they're very helpful. But sometimes they get in the way. Sometimes they, they sort of stop the flow of a book or they trick us a little bit psychologically to keep us from seeing the flow of what's happening. And if you were to read the manuscript as John wrote it, as you were reading from chapter nine into chapter 10, you would not have the psychological barrier of spaces between chapter nine and 10. You wouldn't see big type 10 over here. You wouldn't see a break in the flow at all. Rather, let me just back up to chapter nine, verse 39, and read through verse one of chapter 10 and show you how it would sound. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say that we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So when we remove the chapters and verses and just read this thing through, I think we can see that Jesus was actually speaking to the same group of people in the beginning of chapter 10 as he was at the end of chapter nine, and he's basically addressing the same issues. Chapter 10, one to 21 is part and parcel of the whole story that we read about in chapter nine last week. So specifically, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees in the hearing of the man he had just healed, in the hearing of his disciples, and in the hearing of others who were listening in. And as those people listened in, Jesus spoke to them about true shepherds, about false shepherds, about sheep, and about the purposes of God. And along the way, he's trying to distinguish himself, his intentions, his actions, his purposes, his plans, from those of the Pharisees, okay? So he's telling a parable about sheep and shepherds and all this, but he's actually speaking not inside the temple courts, outside the temple courts, but still within the city limits of Jerusalem, He's trying to tell these people about the true identity of those who claim to be shepherds and the true identity of himself. So with this in mind, I wanna spend our time today just working through this parable. I wanna do the best that I can to just help us understand the contours of what Jesus is saying. And then next week, we're gonna come back to the same parable. And we're gonna look at the Old Testament roots of it. This parable didn't just come out of nowhere. Jesus is clearly drawing on some Old Testament passages. And specifically, we're gonna look at Ezekiel chapter 34. So maybe sometime this week in your personal time of reading, you'd wanna look at Ezekiel chapter 34. We're gonna see how rooted Jesus' words were in that text. We're gonna see how God worked through Jesus to fulfill that text here on this particular day. But for today, I wanna to just stay with this parable and, and start at verse one and work through to verse 21 with you today. Let me begin by explaining a little bit about what it was like to be a shepherd in Jesus' day because I think the picture he had in mind uh, will help us a lot to understand uh, what, what he was trying to say in these verses. So in Jesus' day, most Israelites lived in towns or villages. In our our world, we're seeing more and more people gather in the cities. But in Jesus' day, most people lived in small towns or villages. And most of those people owned at least a few sheep. Sometimes those families would keep their sheep in a courtyard right outside of their house But most of the time, what a village would do is they would build a community sheep pen right in or right near the village and they would all, as various families, put their sheep in there. Then the villagers would hire somebody, usually somebody from their village, to act as a gatekeeper. Probably would be more like two people, one to serve by day and the other to serve by night. The gatekeeper's job was to protect the sheep, but mainly to guard that gate and not to let people into the sheep pen that did not have access there. And then having that person in place, each individual family would appoint a shepherd, usually from their family, uh, to watch over their particular sheep. The shepherds would usually be sons or daughters. Sometimes there was one, sometimes there were two. But the point is they would have a hired gatekeeper and then each individual family would have a shepherd of their own. Early in the morning, family by family, the shepherds would go out. The gatekeeper would recognize them by face, know them by name, give them access to the sheepfold. He would open the door to the sheepfold. Then the shepherd would stand either right by the gate or just outside the gate, and he would begin calling to his own sheep, not to all the sheep, but just to his sheep. And because their flocks were small, even to this day, many Eastern shepherds actually name their sheep and they know them by name. Because their flocks were small, they would usually call them by names, and the sheep would know the voice and the sheep would respond. Some people to this day think that sheep actually do have the ability to recognize their own name. Other people think that they're, they're not actually recognizing the name, they're just recognizing the voice, but whatever the details are, aren't that significant. The point is that the shepherd would stand there and speak and only his sheep would draw out, out to him. And then once his sheep, all of them would come out to him, he would lead them from the front and go out into the pasture. See, in, in the West, our shepherds, well, we don't have a lot of shepherds here in Minnesota. <laughs> But the pictures we generally have of shepherds are of a a person standing in the back and driving the sheep and maybe having a a sheepdog. But to this day, in the East, shepherds lead their flock from the front. And they use the the power of their voice to lead the sheep. And the sheep follow them because they know the, the voice of their shepherd. And the reason this works is because there is a relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. And I'm not saying they had some kind of close heart relationship. I'm just saying that they actually know each other. The shepherd knows the sheep personally, and the sheep know their shepherd personally, and they will follow him. So this is daily life in Israel. Everybody knew it. Everybody would have been familiar with it. And with this in mind, Jesus began now to address the Pharisees, the crowd, the disciples, and the men who had just been healed. And he said in verse one, truly, truly I say to you, this is the 15th time Jesus has said this in John. He's trying to say listen to me and listen to me carefully. I'm speaking to you with earnestness about something that's very important and about something that's going to affect your life, whether or not you listen to me or not. So truly, truly, I say to you, with all the passion I can muster, please hear me. I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. In other words, any person who attempted to access the sheep pen by any other means than the door of that sheep pen was not a true shepherd and does not have good intentions toward the sheep toward the, the gatekeeper or toward the villagers at large. Rather, that person is a thief, that person is a robber, and his intentions in one way, shape, or form is to use the sheep for his own purposes regardless of the damage he does to the sheep and to others. While that person might be skilled at distracting the gatekeeper, while that person might be skilled at gaining access to the pen and deceiving the sheep, the truth of the matter is that he is a false shepherd and not a true shepherd, and indeed they are such in our world today, aren't there? On the other hand, verse two, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. And as I said earlier, the reason the gatekeeper opens to this one is because the gatekeeper recognizes the face, the gatekeeper knows this person, and the gatekeeper trusts this person. And then in verse three, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. The proof that a true shepherd is a true shepherd indeed is that both the gatekeeper and the sheep recognize him, give him entree to the sheep, and they listen to the commands of his voice. And then in verse four, when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. As I said earlier, Unlike Western shepherds, to this very day, Eastern shepherds lead their flocks from the front. They do not coerce or try to force their sheep to follow. They trust in the power of the relationship that has developed between them, guided by the voice, to lead the flock to where it needs to go. I was talking about this with Kimmy the other day, and she said, that'll preach right there. Jesus does not lead us by force and coercion. He leads us from the front with the power of his voice. And again, I'm not trying to say there was some deep relationship between literal shepherds and their literal sheep, but I am trying to say that there was a relationship of sorts. I'm trying to say that the people who owned the sheep cared about each sheep. They knew the sheep by name and there was a bond of trust there so that all they had to do is speak with the voice and the the sheep would follow. The true shepherd, beloved, was a member of the family. The true shepherd had rightful access to the sheep He had personal knowledge of the sheep. He called the sheep by name. He led them on the basis of mutual trust and love and care and concern. And he saw that they were fed by day and that they were kept safe by night. But as for false shepherds, look at verse five. He says, a stranger they, the sheep, will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Indeed, while a false shepherd may do his best to neutralize the gatekeeper, Somehow gain access to the sheep and somehow try to get them to follow him. Eventually his plans will fail unless he does great harm to the sheep because eventually they don't know his voice and they are afraid of him and they will flee from him. They will not follow him far because they don't know him, they don't know his voice, and the bottom line is they don't trust him at all. And as I said, maybe for a moment, maybe for a season they will follow, but eventually they will flee because there's no trust there. Now at this point, Jesus paused, and he probably scanned the crowd. In my mind's eye, that's what I see. He is told his parable now, and I think he just stops to look each person in the eye as well as he can and to see what effect his words are having. And I think he could see that as much as the details of the parable made sense to them, they didn't get his meaning. They didn't understand the application of what he was saying. They didn't understand the the force of his words with regard to the the specific situation that they were in and the particular people that were standing there. And so with love in his heart and with boldness in his heart, Jesus went on to explain his words. And first, he identified himself with one part of the parable. Then second, he identifies himself with another part of the parable. So now let's start at verse 7 and work our way through the rest here and see what Jesus has to say now mainly about himself. First Jesus says in verse seven, truly, truly I say to you, please listen carefully with deep passion and earnestness. I say this to you. I am the door of the sheep. This is the third of Jesus' famous I am sayings in the Gospel of John. Do you remember those? We've talked about them a little bit before. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says I am with something to follow. This is the third of them. And when Jesus uses the words I am, they're not just words. He's using the holy, sacred name of God, Yahweh, I am, and applying it to himself. So please hear me, beloved. When Jesus says, I am the door to the sheep, he's not just comparing himself to a piece of his parable. He is making a claim to be God. He's trying to reveal some aspect of his divine nature and to help the people understand. And in this case, he's saying, that he is the only way of access to the pen and the pasture of God. Jesus is saying that he is the only legitimate entry point into God's family and into God's field where he nourishes his family, where his people are protected by night and fed by day. Indeed, many years later, probably it would have been 10, 15 years later, a little out. Uh, foggy on the math of the timing, but it wasn't all that long later. Jesus' half-brother James had risen to become the key leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he was now facing down some of these very leaders. Now they were not against Jesus, now, now they were against James. And for whatever reason, they actually took him to the very top of the temple and they questioned him about a number of things. But the last question they asked James was this. They said, what does it mean when Jesus said, I am the door? What does that mean? James answered, it means that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation and there is no other. When James answered that way, the Pharisees and their cohorts threw James off the top of the temple in order to kill him. And unfortunately for them, their plan didn't work. He hit the ground, but he did not die. And so they had some of their people take up stones and they killed James right there in the temple complex, right at the base, probably at the back of the temple complex. Now, while that is a sad story in the short term, it serves to illustrate a very important point, beloved. The Jews understood that for a person to claim that he is the door of the pen and pasture of God is for that person to claim that he has a very privileged status with God or perhaps even to say that he is God. I don't think in the day that Jesus said these things, they necessarily caught all the implications of what he was saying, but they knew he was saying something way beyond what any mere human being should be saying. And later, you'll remember in John 14, 6, Jesus was much more explicit about this. He said, I am the way, the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. John 14, 6 and John 10 here are essentially saying the same thing. I am the door to the sheep. I am the only way to the pen and to the pasture of God. Since this is so, Jesus went on to say in verses 8 and 9, all who came before me. Imagine you're a Pharisee there listening to this. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Beloved, do you hear what Jesus is saying? Although his words do apply to others, even to this day, his words apply to others. On this particular day, he had the Pharisees and other religious leaders of Jerusalem in mind. And he was telling them that despite their position, despite their pomp, despite their power, they were in fact false shepherds who were only using God's people to accomplish their own ends. They were using God's people to satisfy their own purposes. And the reason that the sheep were now leaving them and following Jesus is because eventually they won't listen to the voice of a stranger sometimes the sheep will follow because they're confused but in their heart in their mind they know something's not right and when they hear the actual voice of their shepherd they will leave the false shepherd and they will cling to their true shepherd and jesus is speaking to these people and saying this is why this is happening you are false shepherds you are thieves and robbers i am the door to the sheep But on the other hand, these people did know Jesus' voice and they were willing to follow. Even if like that blind man, remember last week we saw at the end of chapter nine, he was kicked out of the synagogue. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. It happens to this day, people are are excluded from churches, sometimes for right reasons, sometimes for wrong reasons. But in our culture, if someone is excommunicated from the church, they're not excommunicated from the culture. In this day, a person who was excommunicated from the synagogue was excommunicated from everything. It would have been nearly impossible to just have a normal life in the Jewish community if you were not allowed to be part of the synagogue structure. There are people, beloved, who hear Jesus' voice and they draw to him no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequence They will suffer anything in this world because they know, I just heard the voice of my true shepherd and I am going to gather to him. Jesus is through a parable trying to explain to these people what's happening right in front of their eyes. So with this in mind, please hear verse 10. This is a famous verse, but please hear verse 10 with fresh ears. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I always thought that was about Satan. In my, in my way of thinking, I always thought the thief here was Satan. And maybe Satan's involved, but I want to be real clear. Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. He's talking about human religious leaders who are leading people astray. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. No matter what the pretensions of the Pharisees, they and their very powerful counterparts took advantage of people to accomplish their own purposes, including but not limited to stealing what was theirs. They were thieves. Partial proof of this we have already seen. Do you remember what happened in in John chapter two, at least the, the middle to end part of it? You remember Jesus walked into the temple courts, into the court of the Gentiles, and had to drive out the money changers and those who were associated with them? You remember that? You know why he did that? Because these people, who were supposed to be the shepherds of the people of God, laying down their lives to serve the people of God, were in fact taking advantage of the people of God and ripping them off, taking their money, taking their possessions in the name of God for their own purposes. And we could go into a lot of detail. These people were rich, they were powerful, off the backs of the people. These people were thieves, beloved. Didn't matter how nicely they dressed in church. had the Today we don't do this, but in their day they had the fancy hats, they had all the nice, everything looked great from the outside, but as Jesus said somewhere else, you guys are like graves, look beautiful on the outside, but inside you're just filled with dead bones. They were thieves, beloved, and worse yet, these religious hypocrites, not every Pharisee, but the ones he's talking to now, they were hypocritical killers, beloved. They were killers, not an exaggeration this was not only true of Jesus. They had a habit of doing away with people that got in their way. They were sort of a religious mafia, if you will, and I really mean that. You get in our way, you're you're gonna die. If you don't shut up and do what we tell you to do, you will pay with your life. And even as they were in the city limits here, in this very conversation, some of these very Pharisees were listening to Jesus and plotting at the same time to kill him And as I told you, it didn't end with Jesus. Even after him, they killed James. They killed others. They imprisoned others. They beat others. Beloved, these people were killers in the name of God. Can you imagine that? I mean, really, honestly, can you imagine that? Plenty of problems with the evangelical church in our day. Plenty of problems. I will be the first one to stand up and confess my own sins rather than pointing my finger at others. Plenty of problems, but honestly, I cannot imagine Major level evangelical leaders getting together and plotting to kill anybody. It's hard, it's hard to imagine, but here in this case, you had a, such a mixture of politics and religion and power, and these people had been deceived. They presented themselves as shepherds, but beloved, they were killers. And in all this, they came to destroy too. They destroyed a lot. I don't know exactly what Jesus had in mind when he said they come to destroy, but just think that all that's destroyed in what I just described. The sacredness, the glory of the name of God is tarnished at best. Nobody can destroy God's holy name, but they do tarnish his name. The trust of the sheep, the, 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 the heart, the tender heart of the sheep that is just so incredibly precious to God, is just broken. Can you imagine what it would be like to just be a normal person and you go to Jerusalem and you expect to be living among holy people, doing holy things, really drawing near to God and what you find out is that there are a bunch of scammers who are just living off the backs of people and killing people who get in their way. Can you imagine that? I saw a documentary on the Catholic Church years ago. I'm a little reluctant to share this now because it's just coming to my mind. I don't want to in- inadvertently offend anybody but I'll just tell you what the documentary said. There were some people as priests who were assigned to go to Rome and they were all excited figuring that there would be a a holy life being lived there and they were shocked to see the debauchery among the priests. Not the people in the city, among the priests. Shocked! Oh beloved, so much is destroyed. So much is destroyed when people who claim to be shepherds of God are in fact thieves and killers and destroyers. As for Jesus though, He said that he is the door to God's pen and the path to his pasture, that's who he is. He said that he came that God's sheep may have life and not only have life sufficiently, but have it abundantly. You see, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I didn't come to use the sheep. I came to serve the sheep. I did not come to use the name of God to glorify myself. I came to serve my Father for the glory of his name. I came that they may have life, and not only sufficiently, but that they might have it abundantly. Jesus came that his people would not only be fed and protected by God, but that they would truly know God and love God and enjoy all the manifold benefits of God, both now and forevermore. Jesus came not just that his sheep would be alive, but that they would passionately pulse with life. And of course, we have our times, we have our days, we have our ups, we have our downs, we have our sufferings, we have our victories, we have our failures, but through the course of it all, Jesus is giving life, he's giving life, he's giving life, he's giving life to those who look to him, who follow him, who trust him, who love him. Jesus said, I'm not like these people, I'm not like them. I came to give life, I came to give it abundantly. Do you hear what he's saying? I'm not some charismatic religious leader who's coming to draw away people to myself and lead them where they don't wanna go. I have actually come to lead them in the right way. I have come to lead them into life abundant, life overflowing, life even excessive, we could say. As amazing as all of these things are, Jesus had more to say about himself. Please look with me at verse 18. He simply states, I am the good shepherd. This is now the fourth I am saying in the Gospel of John. And again, he's not just comparing himself to a part of a parable, beloved. He's using the sacred name of God to reveal something about himself. I am Yahweh. I am the good shepherd. This is part of who I am. This is what makes me function. This is what makes me tick. This is why I live. I live to overflow. I live to give. I live to protect. I live to comfort. I live to feed. I live to be the shepherd of my own people. Jesus is now saying, beloved, claiming very clearly, I am the true shepherd. All these guys, false shepherds. Maybe not every single one of them. I don't want to overstate the case. It's easy to do that. It's easy to lump everybody into a group and just condemn them all. But the leading Pharisees, the most powerful among them, were false shepherds, beloved. Jesus is saying, not me. Believe what you will, think what you will. But I am the true shepherd. I am the one who belongs to the house. I am the one who has rightful access to God's pen and God's pasture. I am the one who has the rightful responsibility of caring for the sheep, leading them in and leading them out. I'm the one who has personal knowledge of the sheep. I call every single one of them by name. I am the one whose voice they recognize, even if at the moment they've forgotten my voice. When they hear my voice, they recognize it. They awaken, they remember, they draw to me. Jesus is saying that he is the I am over the sheep of God for the glory of God. And you know what the best proof of his true shepherdness is to us? It's what he says in the rest of verse 18. He says that he will lay down his life for the sheep. He will lay his life down. His heart is not to use them to satisfy his own desires. Rather, his heart is to protect them for the Father's purposes. I think I mixed up myself, by the way, with the verse numbers that I'm calling out. Hopefully you fixed the problem while you're listening to me. But look right now at verses 11 through 13 with me. Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now listen carefully. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep He sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees, why? Because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. And again, I want to say to you that while Jesus' words apply to others, even to this very day, his words apply to others. He had the Pharisees and other religious leaders in Jerusalem in mind here. He's speaking to them. And it's important that we distinguish, we find another category in our hearts, for some of these guys, and and even leaders in our day. Some of them were like thieves and robbers, but others of them were not. Others of them were more like hired hands. They were appointed and they were paid to do a job, and they were willing to do that job, but at the end, because they were like hired hands, they weren't gonna hang around when serious trouble hit the fold, right? When serious problems come, when wolves come in the midst of the flock, when things threaten to to, to destroy the flock from inside or from outside. They're going to flee because they're not, they're not true shepherds. They're hired hands. They will not stand their ground. They will not die for the good of the sheep. Rather, they will flee in order to protect themselves. And when they flee, what happens is that the wolf gains access to the flock. To those he can, he devours. He snatches them. And what do wolves do when they snatch sheep? They don't go sit out and have tea together and talk about things, right? They eat them to death. They destroy the sheep. Metaphor, yes. Truth, yes, beloved. Please hear. Wolves destroy the sheep. And those that they cannot snatch and destroy, they will scatter. They will scatter them as far as they can and as fast as they can. The eyes of these particular shepherds are not on, their fa- on, on the Father They're not on the good of the sheep. The eyes of these particular shepherds are on themselves. Maybe they're not thieves and killers, but they're very self-centered. And whenever trouble comes, they're gonna hit the road because they're hired hands and they don't have a true love for the sheep. To this day, beloved, there's plenty of people who have the job, who who get a paycheck for being the, the, the hired hand over God's people, but they're not true shepherds. They don't have a heart for the people. And you'll see that when trouble comes. When trouble comes, it'll become real obvious what their heart is about, but Jesus, he says, is nothing like this, and I really pray that we'll have ears to hear this today, because this is not just a parable, this is real stuff, this is real life, This is daily life in this world, Jesus is nothing like this, look at verses 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd, he says it now for the second time, I know my own, and my own know me, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is neither a thief nor a robber nor a hired hand. Rather, he is the one who loves the Father and therefore he loves the sheep and therefore he will do whatever it takes to care for the sheep. When he sees the wolf coming, he does not flee. He takes his stand. He takes his stand. Please notice that Jesus knows his own. That word is so important, beloved. It's so incredibly important. God's sheep are not just possessions or pawns to Jesus. Even to this day, the people of God are often just possessions or pawns to other powerful religious leaders, but not so with Jesus. He does not see them as possessions or pawns. Rather, they are precious members of the household of God. And therefore, he takes time to know their name. He takes time to call them by name. And furthermore, notice that the sheep know him. Now, as I contemplated this earlier this week, I was so touched. I was touched to the point of tears by this as I thought about Jesus and how he is. Because do you know how much time and attention it takes to get each individual sheep to know the shepherd well? You know, It's one thing for the shepherd to take the time to get to know each sheep, but to take the time to get to each sheep in the way that the sheep really understands so that the sheep really knows the shepherd, that takes an inordinate amount of wisdom and skill and love and compassion. It's unbelievable that the God who spoke the universe into being with nothing more than his words, that he would take the time to be so gentle, so protective, so caring of his sheep, beloved. It's just just stunning to me. But such is the love of Jesus for the sheep of his pasture that he will do whatever it takes to ensure a reciprocal love and a reciprocal knowledge in his household. And this commitment comes not only from his own heart, but it is the overflow of the relationship between the Father and Him. Notice what He said there, even as I love the Father and the Father loves me. Jesus is gonna teach us a lot about this in John chapter 17. It's so many months off, but I'm telling you, I cannot wait till we get to John 17. One of my life prayers is, Lord, I'm ready to go see you anytime, but please let me preach through John 17 before I go. I love that chapter. It's to me one of the twin peaks of the Bible along with Romans chapter eight. It's stunning. But here, Jesus is already planting seeds. He's already uh, sort of paving the way for us to see something that is very profound. That his love for the flock is the overflow of the love between the Father and of the Son. And of course, the Holy Spirit is also involved in this. But in John, there's a special relationship between the Father and the Son that is often highlighted. Even as the Father knows Jesus, and even as Jesus knows the Father, Their heart is to let this profoundly relational communion overflow and characterize the culture of their family. Do you see that? Deep personal love where the people are valued and known and cared for and protected is the culture of Jesus' household. And because he is deeply driven by love for his father and for the flock, he will not flee when trouble comes, but he will lay down his life for the sheep. He fears not the wolf, because he has an adequate and a proper fear of his father. Although he was saying these things to Jewish people and about Jewish people, he took this opportunity to teach them that that his father's plan was much greater than Israel. This is something that maybe these people should have known but they didn't think about very often, that's for sure. In fact, the father's plan would include all the nations of the world in accordance with his promise to Abraham so, so long ago. Jesus was vague about what he said, and surely I don't even think his own disciples understood him in this moment. Later they understood him, but in this moment I don't think they understood. But I'm telling you, beloved, verse 16 is just so packed with stuff. I could preach an entire message just on this verse. So let's just look at it, and I'll say a couple things about it. Jesus said, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. When Jesus says this fold, he's talking about the Jewish community. And therefore, when he says that he has other sheep that are not of this fold, he's talking about Gentile communities. And in fact, we know from other things that he's talking about every Gentile community, every language, tongue, and nation. So please notice a few things with me. First of all, the sheep about whom Jesus is talking already belong to him. Please understand that. I have other sheep. I have other sheep. They already belong to him. Second, because they already belong to him, when he speaks, they will listen to his voice. There might be a process. There might be a time where people struggle. Might be a time where people even object and fight against Jesus, but eventually they're gonna come to him because as his sheep that already belong to him, they're gonna know his voice and they're going to draw to him. In my own case, the Lord dealt with me for quite a long time before, frankly, he smacked me up to the side of the head with his rod and brought me to himself. But on that day, October 26, 1986, I knew my shepherd was speaking and I came. And the proof that it was real is that 30 plus years later, I'm still standing here in love with Jesus. Why? Because of his love to me. I already belong to him. And so when he spoke, I came to him. Third, notice that his mission in the world to this day is not just to acquire more sheep, but to seek those who already are his, do you see? Jesus' design in missions throughout the world is not to coerce people into the kingdom of God. It's not to persuade them into the kingdom of God. We were joking about this earlier, but really it's not to to bring them in by, hey, here's some brownies, here's a nice car, here's another shiny thing. Come to Jesus and you'll get this thing. No, no, no. He doesn't have to play games like that. He's not going in to try to grow his movement. He's going to find his own sheep. He's going to seek and save the lost that already belong to him. Fourth, his vision then is to lead sheep into the singular fold of God. What does this mean? It means that Jews and Gentiles alike will be one flock with one shepherd. That's what it means. Those who teach, there are not many groups that teach this, but there are some that teach that the Jews are saved still to this day through the law and Gentiles are saved through the cross of Christ. Those people are teaching heresy. To call them heretics is another matter. You'd have to get to know the person. Sometimes people are sincere but unclear about the fine points of doctrine. There is not two ways to salvation. There is one way to salvation. There is one door to the pen and pasture of God. His name is Jesus Christ. There is no other. Jews and Gentiles alike will form one flock and we will have and we have even now one shepherd. And so with this, Jesus concludes verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me. And what's, what's that reason? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Nobody takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Beloved, I hope you can hear what he's saying. Imagining the scene with him and the Pharisees there. He's speaking to them. He knows that they're plotting to take his life. And he is telling them that his impending death will come not because of their plans but because of his willingness to lay his life down for the sheep so that they'll be safe from the wolves. Jesus is in control here. Yes, they may kill him, but Jesus is not a victim. There's a willingness in Jesus' heart. There's a a desire in his heart to do whatever it takes. Care for the sheep and glorify his Father's name. That is the greatest proof that he is the true shepherd, beloved, the greatest proof. He gave up every earthly thing for the good of his flock and for the glory of his Father. A parable is just a parable, but now Jesus is talking beyond the parable. He's talking about real life. Soon he would die, but he wants the people to know something, that no one takes the life of the good shepherd. Why? Look at what he says. It's because he received this charge from his father. That's why. He and the father from before the foundation of the world had figured all this out and he gave the son authority to do what? Authority to lay his life down for the sheep. Now, does that sound like an authority that you want? Hey, I got some good news for you. I'm gonna give you the authority to go and die for the people of God. But it is good news because it's the ultimate proof of love. It is the ultimate proof of love. Earlier this year, had some struggles with our daughter. She was struggling with some things in her own life and wondered if Kim and I would just walk away from her because she was struggling with some legitimate things in her life. But boy, was she surprised when I said to her, Rachel, what are you talking about? Not only would I love to to work through this with you, but I would lay down my life for you. I would die for you. That's proof, beloved. That's proof of love. And oh, the love of a father, of a daughter, is nothing compared to the love of God for his flock. The ultimate proof of Jesus' loyalty to his father and to his flock is that he'll lay down his life. But notice that he didn't only get the authority to do that, he got the authority to take his life up again. The father gave him this charge, go son, live, die, and live again for the glory of my name and for the good of the flock, go do it. This authority came from the father and therefore, beloved, nothing could stop it. I hope you understand. We're now on the precipice of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and he's trying to speak into their lives. He's trying to help them interpret what's about to happen. He knows that pretty much none of them are going to get it before the fact, but I think he's hoping that after the fact they'll look back and say, wow, wow, that's what he was talking about. This parable is a parable, but it's so much more than a parable, beloved, to this day. Jesus is actually the door to the sheepfold. He is the singular way to the pen and the pasture of God. He is the singular way into the safety where God dwells. He is the singular way into the field where God feeds and nourishes his people. There is no other way. And Jesus, in truth, is the singular true shepherd over God's people. We're gonna see next week that this was prophesied hundreds of years before he ever took a breath on this earth. He is the singular true shepherd who will lead us in the right way and for the right reasons. As Kevin so, I think, wisely prayed earlier, not only are we distracted, but we are often very complicit in our distraction. And I'll tell you, the heart of our complicity is that we stop listening to the voice of our shepherd. The the, the key to life is listening to the voice of our shepherd. Everything else follows from that. And when we do listen to the voice of our shepherd, he will truly lead us into good pastures. He will lead us beside quiet waters, still waters. He will nourish our soul. He will feed us. He will empower us. He will do for us what only he can do for us. Beloved, Jesus is not just a talker. A lot of people make a lot of claims, but he is the great I am. And even now, even this moment, he's proving himself to be that, as I'm sure he's working in the hearts of those of us who are gathered here this morning. As profound as Jesus' words were and as profoundly meaningful as they were, not everyone understood him, not everybody received him. So you'll see in verses 19 through 21 that there was now a division among the Jews that listened to him. And we'll pick up some clues here, by the way, that he was, in fact, talking to the same group of people. But for now, please look at at verse 19, I think it is, where he says many of them, or it might be verse 20, says that many of them, many of the Jews that were listening to him, they said this out loud and in public, he has a demon and he is insane, why listen to him? Now some of this group probably thought that Jesus was speaking gibberish. They might have thought that there was literally something wrong with him and that he was maybe gifted at drawing a crowd, but he's off. Charles Manson was also incredibly gifted at drawing a crowd. I lived in Los Angeles when Charles Manson was at the height of his deceit, but he was crazy. He was insane, and I don't know that they thought Jesus was a killer, but, I, but some people were saying this guy's a nutcase. So why should we listen to him? Other people, I think, caught more of the drift of what Jesus was trying to say. They might not have understood that he was claiming to be God, but they surely understood that he was claiming an incredibly high status with God, and they were objecting to that. They were not thinking that he was clinically insane. They just thought he was a nutcase for claiming such things. But whatever their various points of view about him, they agreed that he had a demon and that he was insane, which, by the way, in their day was saying the same thing. They felt that insanity was always a, 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 an issue of having a demon in your life. So they're looking at the God of truth who had come to reveal the glory of God's truth to them and they're saying that he's demonized and that he's insane. You know, as I thought about this, how could people who look at the very God of life think that he's satanic? How could that happen? Well, just like Kevin prayed at the beginning of the service, they're complicit, they're complicit. It turns out that when you turn away from God, when you turn away from his word, when you turn away from his ways and you begin to follow in your own ways, maybe you can buy the fancy suits and stand up before God's people. Maybe you can seem like you have it all together. Maybe you can have your pomp and your position and your power and all of that stuff. But the truth is when you listen to voices other than the voice of the true shepherd, you go astray and more and more and more, you become blind to the truth. Remember, we saw that at the end of of chapter nine. Jesus said, listen, the problem with you guys is you think you can see, but you're actually blind. You're so blind that you cannot see the blazing glory of the Son of God revealed right in front of your face. You can't even see it. You can't even see it. But whatever the deep, deep causes, the bottom line is these people thought that he had a demon, that he was insane. You'll see in verse 21, though, that another group rose up. And I think that among them were some Pharisees. So we have to be careful not to lump all these people into one group. They said, these words are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So this group is not necessarily persuaded at this time, but they're looking at the works of Jesus. They're listening to the words of Jesus. And they just can't believe that this guy came out of nowhere, that he was demon-possessed or oppressed or however you want to put it and that he was an insane man. They can't believe it because they're saying, could an insane person do these things? Can an insane person make so much sense from the age of 12 upward and so powerfully persuade people, not by the power of his personality, but by the inescapability of the truth that he's speaking? Who could do this? And again, maybe they're not believers right now, but I think among this group there are a number of people who are eventually gonna believe because they're hearing his voice and they're responding. They're like, I don't know what this is, but there's something that sounds familiar-ish about this. There's something that, that feels attractive to me. There's something that feels penetrating to me, and I don't want to turn away from it. Whatever the details of their division on this particular day, I think that Jesus had all the confidence in the world that in the end, his own would believe in him, and they would gather to him. They would hear his voice, and eventually, after a process, they would follow him. In the short term, Jesus' words and Jesus' works would divide people from people. Doesn't that still happen today? The works of Jesus, the words of Jesus, that sharp sword that comes out of his mouth, it usually begins by dividing people from people. And then in the long term, those words draw his flock to himself. In the short term, they divide. In the long term, they unite the flock of God. In the long term, Jesus Uh, leads those people to walk through the door that is him so that they now have access to the pen of God and to the pasture of God. In the long term, Jesus knows and he knew then that his own people would follow him as their good shepherd all the days of their life and in fact, into eternity. Because beloved, again, this parable is not just a parable. This is real life. This was happening live then and it's happening live right now. Jesus' words divide and they unite his flock unto himself. And with that, I do want to say in closing that it seems to me that the words and the works of Jesus still do this very thing today. They divide people from people and they unite his true sheep to himself. Some see what Jesus is doing. Some people hear about what he is saying and they criticize him, they malign him, they castigate him in all kinds of ways or some people just flat ignore him. They just pretend that he's no one to be really thought of in any serious way. Other people hear and they just can't walk away. Maybe they don't understand at first, but they're gripped. They're curious. Maybe they're wrestling, maybe they're objecting, maybe all these things, but they can't stop thinking about this Jesus. This is what happened in my life. Over a period of a year or more, the Lord kept sending witnesses into my life and I was resisting and resisting and resisting, but I could not stop thinking about Jesus. I could not stop, and finally on that fateful day, in October of 1986, he came and brought me to himself fully and faithfully because I belong to him. From before the foundation of the world, I belong to him. And I believe, maybe even in this room right now, it's happening, maybe there's something in you that's resisting Christ or wrestling with Christ, but you know, you know that you're hearing something real. And I wanna tell you, if that's you, eventually he's gonna bring you to himself because you belong to him. He knows what his word will do, he knows how it will divide. He knows how it will unite to himself. And so I just want to take a little time now to pray before we sing our closing song. I want to pray that God would use his word to work powerfully among us. And I trust that he will do just that. So I want to start, I'm just going to be silent for a moment and just let you reflect on what you've heard today and on the words before you in your Bibles today. And then I'll pray and then we'll sing our closing song. Lord, I do want to ask you in these moments of silence that you would come and by your Holy Spirit that you would speak, that you would reveal, that you would take the powerful two-edged sword of your word and pierce our hearts, Lord, and help us to see what you want us to see here today. Jesus, we thank you that your parable is more than a parable. We thank you that you are in fact the door to the pen and the pasture of God. We thank you that you are the good shepherd who leads us in the right way for the good of our souls and for the glory of your great name and the glory of your Father's name. We thank you that you have our best intentions in mind, that you came to nourish us, that you came to give us life and give us life abundantly. We thank you that you are not self-centered, but that you are Father-centered, that you do everything for the very best reasons. We just thank you flat out for who you are, no matter how we respond to you. We thank you for who you are. And Lord, I pray now for those in this room right now who have real hard hearts to you, who maybe haven't bothered even listening to a thing that was said today. God, I pray that in your mercy, you would soften their hearts. I pray that in your mercy, you would capture their souls. I pray that in your mercy, you would draw them to yourselves. And I pray for those among us, Lord, who are wrestling, who have heard, and maybe they have questions and some difficulties and some things to ask about, but they're wrestling, and they do have a kind of respect for you, and they wonder how could a false prophet say and do such things like this. Lord, I just pray for them. I pray that you would be gracious to them. You were gracious to me in my time of wrestling, and I pray that you'd be gracious to them now, Father. And then I pray for the sheep who have already come into your fold. Lord, I pray for those who, who are enjoying the life that you have given to them. I thank you for the those who are seeing the great grace of God and giving them a pen and a pasture. And I just pray that you would prosper them all the more. I pray that they would even shed tears as they think about the reality of their good shepherd, who is the door to all the greatest and most eternal things of God. And I pray, Father, for those among us, those who we love, who are straying away, who are being led away by wolves, who are wandering into pastures they should not wander into, Father. I pray for them, and I pray your mercy upon them. I pray your grace for them, and I thank you so much that you have a heart to leave the 99 and go find that one, Lord. It's just such an amazing thing to look at your compassion and the power and the depth of your compassion, and for those of us who are deeply complicit in our distractions, Lord, I just ask you to use this message this morning to capture our attention and bring us fully back into the fold for the glory of your name and the nourishment of our souls. Now please receive our praise, Lord, as we stand to sing praise to your holy and sacred name. Father, I pray that you would feel honored in Jesus' name, amen.